Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 31, Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Well, let's be very clear where Israel stands with God at this moment in Exodus as we begin with chapter 33. The Mosaic Covenant has been broken. It is not in operation. And therefore, Israel's relationship with God is broken. All of this the result of idol worship of that golden calf. Now, the result of Israel breaking some of the terms of the Mosaic Covenant will not be the end nor the abolishment of Israel right, as God's chosen people because the Lord reestablished the same covenant with Moses when Moses trekked back up that mountain with a fresh set of stone tablets. And we're not going to see this fully explained actually until Deuteronomy, although we'll get a glimpse of it. So let's read chapter 33 of Exodus together this evening. Chapter 33 of Exodus. Turn your Bibles there. Exodus chapter 33. Adonai said to Moshe, Leave you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt and move on from here toward the land of which I swore to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel ahead of you, and I will drive out the Canaani, the Amori, the Hitti, the Prizi, the Hebe, and the Yavusi. You will go to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I myself will not go with you, because you are such a stiff-necked people that I might destroy you along the way. When the people heard this bad news, they went into mourning. No one wore his ornaments. Adonai said to Moses, tell the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go up with you for even one moment, I'd exterminate you. Now, keep your ornaments off. Then I'll decide what to do with you. So from Mount Horeb onward, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments. Moses would take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far away from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Everyone who wanted to consult Adonai would go out to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moshe went out to the tent, all the people would get up and stand, each man at his own tent door, and look at Moses until... He had gone into the tent. Whatever, whenever Moshe entered the tent, the column of cloud would descend and station itself at the entrance to the tent. And that and I would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the column of cloud stationed at the entrance to the tent, they would get up and prostrate themselves, each man at his tent door. Adonai would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Then he would return to the camp. But the young man who was his assistant, Yahshua, the son of Nun, never left the inside of the tent. 
Moses said to Adonai, Look, you say to me, Make these people move on, but you haven't let me know whom you'll be sending with me. Nevertheless, you have said, I know you by name, and also you have found favor in my sight. Now please, if that's really the case, that I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I can understand you and continue finding favor in your sight. Moreover, keep on seeing this nation as your people. And he answered, set your mind at rest. My presence will go with you after all. And Moses replied, if your presence don't, doesn't go with us, don't make us go on from here. For how else is it to be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, other than by your going with us? That is what distinguishes us, me, your people, from all the other peoples on the earth. Adonai said to Moses, I will also do what you have asked me to do because you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. But Moses said, I beg you to show me your glory. And he replied, I will cause all of my goodness to pass before you. And in your presence, I will pronounce the name of Adonai. Moreover, I will show favor to whomever I will. And I will display mercy to whomever I will. But my face, he continued, you cannot see. Because a human being cannot look at me and remain alive. Here, he said, is a place near me. Stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you inside of a crevice in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face is not to be seen. Jehovah, in verse 1, gives orders, gives Moses orders for Israel to strike camp and to move forward. They're still camped at the base of Mount Sinai, and they've been there now for about a year. The law has been given. The instructions for God's tabernacle have been given. Okay, And now it's time to move on towards their goal, their real goal, the land of promise, Canaan. That's the good news. The bad news is that the punishment for Israel's breaking of the covenant is that God will not dwell among them. However, in his great mercy, he says he will send an angel ahead of Israel who will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites all ahead of Israel's arrival into the land. Now, God tells the people that they're to remove their ornaments. That is, they're not to wear any of their fine jewelry. Now, this signifies a couple of things to the Hebrews. First, jewelry goes hand in hand with joyousness and a kind of prosperity, and that certainly is not called for considering what has just transpired with that golden calf. All right, And they should be in a state of mourning for losing the presence of God among their midst because of their actions. Second of all, the jewelry was what had been used for making that golden calf in the first place. That was not what that jewelry was intended for. Okay. The jewelry was the result of a kind of 
God-ordained retribution upon the Egyptians when Jehovah instructed Israel to strip Egypt as they were leaving. And the precious metals were in part supposed to be used for God's dwelling place that they would build. Well, in verse 7, we're told that whenever Moses would pitch the tent, he did it outside the camp of Israel. Now, let's think about that for a minute. There are some interesting aspects here that I'd like to point out to you. First, many commentators make this tent that we read about here out to be the tabernacle. And even though the word tabernacle doesn't even exist in these verses, many translators have decided that's what it was referring to, so they insert the word. Okay, I have a problem with that notion, that this is the tabernacle, because it didn't even exist at this moment. Okay, First, the timing is not right for this. Okay, Up to now, all that's been given is instructions that they're to build one. Right? There's no evidence that the tabernacle has actually been constructed. See, the golden calf incident interrupted everything. Okay? It, it won't be until after Moses goes back up the mountain that second time with that second set of tablets the tabernacle is actually built. And therefore, God for now has separated himself from Israel because the covenant doesn't actually exist at this moment that makes them makes Israel his people, and he their God. Okay. Second, the word used throughout these verses to describe what Moses erected at this moment is in Hebrew, O-L, O-H-E-L, O-L. And it means simply tent. Okay. And this word is used in several places in this chapter, and it is the only word used to refer to whatever it was that Moses erected outside the camp. It's also used when we're told that whenever the Israelites saw Moses heading towards his O.L., they would stand outside their own O.L.s. Third is the indication that it was Moses who actually erected the tent. We know that it would have taken hundreds of people to erect the tabernacle, and and the verse simply doesn't give us the impression that, 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 that Moses at the most, maybe his immediate family, actually participated in erecting this tent of chapter 33. And finally, we know from Numbers and Deuteronomy that when the tabernacle was erected, the tribes surrounded it in a very specific order that we've already discussed. And in that arrangement, the tabernacle is not only inside the camp, rather than, as it says here, outside the camp, all right, it's at the center of the camp. I think that the tent used here was just an ordinary tent. And um, it was probably, really, simply Moses' personal tent. We're told in verses 9 through 10 that the cloud would station itself at the entrance to Moses' tent. Whereas later, what we know for sure... um, when we're speaking of God's ordained model of heaven, that tabernacle, all right, the wilderness tabernacle, that tabernacle, the cloud hovered over the tent. So something is obviously different here. We also read that Joshua never left the inside of the tent 
That was certainly not the case with the wilderness tabernacle, because only priests, Levites, could even enter the tabernacle. Joshua was not a Levite. He would have had no business being there if it was the wilderness tabernacle. Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. In fact, later we're told that anyone other than priests from the tribe of Levi would be killed if they had anything to do with the tabernacle. So why was Moses allowed in? He was a Levite. What we have seen, what we have here is a picture that when Moses needed to meet with Jehovah, he actually, at this current moment, did it outside of the tent. Joshua stayed separate by staying inside so that he kind of stayed hidden away while Moses and God did business outside that tent. Now, a reasonable question is, so how is it that God told Moses up on Mount Sinai that he required the construction of this elaborate and detailed tabernacle for his presence if he was going to dwell with men, but then turned around and met with Moses in front of an ordinary tent. My contention is something that we've discussed on a number of occasions, that there is nothing intrinsically holy about the wilderness tabernacle, nor any other created thing. God simply declared that tabernacle to be holy. The tabernacle was not for the sake of God, it was for the sake of the people, so that they could be assured visibly of his presence, so they could be reminded of his law, of his holiness, so they wouldn't sin against him. And it was an important teaching tool, perhaps more for us today in many ways than even for the Israelites back then. God could up and declare this room we're in to be holy. And that's that. Okay. I, I guess God declared that plain old tent that they were meeting in with Moses to be holy. Now remember, for a time now in Exodus, everything has been topsy-turvy. All right, Because Israel broke that covenant. Israel has severed their relationship with God, so God has removed his presence from Israel. And his presence with them was all that distinguished Israel from anybody else. Whereas inside the camp of Israel was supposed to be the clean area, outside the camp was supposed to be the unclean area, ritually unclean. Um, There is no inside the camp as a clean area right now. It just doesn't exist. The only clean area that was anywhere near the Israelites with just this little area right in front of Moses' tent. The idea of being inside or outside the camp really only has meaning in the current context in the sense of the Lord either being in Israel's midst or not. And for now, the Lord is not in Israel's midst, so therefore he's not inside their camp. Okay, another little conundrum. Verse 11 says, Moses and God spoke face to face as if they were friends. But later in verse 20, God says that no one, including Moses, can see God's face. Right? How do we deal with this seeming contradiction all in a matter of half a dozen verses? 
Okay, I'm going to go into a little bit of depth about this because we we, we will get this phrase face to face many times in the Torah, and several of those times, but not all, are referring to God speaking to Moses. There is a Hebrew word used here that can mean presence or face. Those two words. And it's panayim. Okay. And it can mean a face, just as we think of a face, animal or human, actually. Or it can indicate a presence. Okay. Now, personally, although not every biblical translator or scholar would agree with me, I think what we're being told here is that Moses spoke to God face to presence. Moses face God's presence. Okay. That The idea is that God's spirit was present. It was near versus far away. Moses' conversation with Jehovah was not like prayer was back then. Right? That, that allowed a man to communicate to God from afar. Right? That is, man on earth, God in heaven, separated. Okay. Really, Moses' faced presence, communication with God is almost indistinguishable, indistinguishable from a modern believer's prayer life. Since the day of Pentecost, when his spirit came to dwell in us, things changed. Because God's presence is always with us. We don't have to speak to him from afar. We speak to him face to face like a friend because he's near. We have a very similar kind of privilege as to what Moses had. Now there's another consideration. Face to face was in that day used as a, an expression. Right? And it could mean a couple of things. First, it could speak of actually an intense conversation. Right? Perhaps a, akin to a heated debate. Right? Or even better, hard bargaining. If you've ever been to the Middle East or seen a good travelogue on TV of an oriental market, you're going to see people loudly arguing, their hands are flailing around, they're scowling, they seem angry at each other. Not to worry, this is purely cultural. They're just conducting business as usual. All right? They're negotiating. Anger's not really being displayed at all. Okay? Jews will do the same thing when discussing religious doctrines and laws. All right? A second meaning is that one... Indeed, one of the parties is displaying angry when this term is used sometimes, face-to-face. Now, it's very difficult to know in the scriptures when face-to-face is simply indicating presence, or it's indicating hard bargaining, or it's indicating anger. Okay, It's all in the context, but just remember it's also all very cultural. In verse 20, though, the general belief among Hebrew scholars is that when God tells Moses that he cannot see his face, he's not allowed to do this, it's more along the lines of face as we think of a human face. That is, a general presence. So verse 11 is about God's presence and the way we think of the Holy Spirit's invisible presence in our day, 
And verse 20 is about God's face that apparently could be visible to human eyes. Yet there is a strong hint that face-to-face in verse 11 incorporates the idea of a heated debate. Because beginning in verse 12, we start this typical Middle Eastern style of interplay between God and Moses. Moses questions. God says what he's going to do. Moses disagrees and he offers a suggestion. God says no. Moses tries to get God to see it his way. God eventually does. Just reread that. All right, and you see this interplay going back and forth. Please, God, don't do this. Yes, I'm going to get rid of him. No, you're not. Okay, I won't. That's what you see. Okay. Now, in verse 19, God says He's going to show Moses what His goodness. All right, and that He's going to proclaim. This is interesting. Watch, watch me carefully with this. He's going to proclaim, it says, the name of the Lord before Moses. Just so we're on the same page. What is actually said in the scriptures, in the original Hebrew, is I will proclaim the name of yud Hey vav Hey, Yehovah. Not Lord. It does not say Lord. God is saying he is going to speak his own name, which is yud Hey vav Hey. God is revealing his nature to Moses. In Middle Eastern culture, to reveal one's name, his Shem, is to reveal one's character. Because name and character are organically connected. God is too holy even for Moses to look upon his face. But God is merciful and gracious. He will choose, he says, who he is merciful and gracious to. Man does not decide such matters. Chapter 33 ends with Jehovah directing Moses to stand in a crevice, a cleft in a rock. And with God himself, says, covering Moses' eyes so that he won't see his face. But after God passes, Moses says that he could see his back. What does that mean? I don't know. Serious. All right. I've read so much stuff on this, trying to Jewish and Christian perspective, all of it very unsatisfactory, most of it amounting to allegory. So we're just going to leave it here for what it says. Maybe later on we'll get a hint. Okay. Let's move on into chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. We're going to read it all. Adonai said to Moses, Cut yourself two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I'll inscribe on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by morning, and in the morning you are to ascend Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on top of the mountain. No one's to come up with you. No one's to be seen anywhere on this mountain. Don't even let the flocks or herds feed in front of this mountain. Moses cut two two stone tablets like the first, and then he got up early in the morning, and with the two stone tablets in his hands, he ascended Mount Sinai as Adonai had ordered him to do. Adonai descended in the clouds, stood with him there, and pronounced the name of Adonai. 
Adonai pronounced, uh, passed before him and proclaimed, yud heh vav -Hey. yud heh vav -Hey. Yehovah is God, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in grace and truth, showing grace to the thousandth generation, forgiving offenses, crimes and sins, yet not exonerating the guilty, but causing the negative effects of the parents' offenses to be experienced by their children and grandchildren and even by the third and fourth generations. As but once Moses bowed his head to the ground, he prostrated himself and he said, if I have now found favor in your view, Adonai, then please let Adonai go with us, even though they are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our offenses and our sin and take us as your possession. He said, here, I am making a covenant in front of all your people. I will do wonders such as this, such has not been created anywhere on earth or in any nation. All the people around you will see the work of Adonai. What I'm going to do through you will be awesome. Observe what I'm ordering you to do today. Here, I am driving out ahead of you. The Amorai, the Canaani, the Hiti, the Prezi, the Hivi, the Yavusi. Be careful not to make a covenant with the people living in the land where you're going so that they won't become a snare within your own borders. Rather, you're to demolish their altars, smash their standing stones, cut down their sacred poles, because you're not to bow down to any other god. Since Adonai, whose very name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Do not make a covenant with the people living in the land. It will cause you to go astray after their gods, sacrifice to their gods, then they will invite you to join them in eating their sacrifices and you will take their daughters as wives for your sons. Their daughters will prostitute themselves to their own gods and make your sons do the same. Do not cast metal gods for yourselves. Keep the festival of matzah by eating matzah as I ordered you for seven days during the month of Abib. For it was in the month of Abib that you came out from Egypt. Everything that is first from the womb is mine. Of all your livestock, you are to set aside for me the males, the firstborn of cattle and flock. The firstborn of a donkey you must redeem with a lamb. If you don't redeem it, break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you are to redeem, and no one is to appear before me empty-handed. Six days you will work, but on the seventh day you are to rest. Even in plowing time and harvest season, you are to rest. Observe the festival of Shavuot with the first gathered produce of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the Lord Adonai, the God of Israel. I'm going to expel nations ahead of you and expand your territory, and no one will even covet your land when you go up to appear before Adonai, your God, three times a year. You're not to offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, and the sacrifice of the feast of Pesach will not, is not to be left until morning. You are to bring the best first fruits of your land into the house of Adonai, your God. You're not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Adonai said to Moses, write these words down, because they are the terms of the covenant I've made with you and with Israel. Moses was there with Adonai forty days and forty nights, during which time he neither ate food nor drank water. And Adonai wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten words.
When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he didn't realize that the skin of his face was sending out rays of light as a result of his talking with Adonai. When Aaron and the people of Israel saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining. They were afraid to approach him. But Moses called to them. Then Aaron and all the community leaders came back to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he passed on to them all the orders that Adonai had told him on Mount Sinai. Once Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when he came, when he went in before Adonai for him to speak, he would take the veil off until he came out. Then when he came out, he would tell the people of Israel what he had been ordered. But when the people of Israel saw Moses' face, that the skin of Moses' face shone, he would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with Adonai. Well, if chapter 32 was about breaking the covenant, chapter 33 shows what happens when the covenant is invalidated and the consequences. Well, now this chapter 34 is all about its reinstatement. Okay, or as Everett Fox calls this, this the fifth division of the six divisions of Exodus, infidelity and restoration. Now, Yehovah directs Moses to cut two new stone tablets and bring them to the summit of Mount Sinai. Since a little time has passed since we've talked about the location of where all this was taking place, this might be a good time to remind you that this mountain of God goes by another name. As well as Sinai, it's called Mount Horeb. Right? They're one in the same place. Right? I'd also like you to recall that it is unimaginable that the location of Mount Sinai was in the Sinai Peninsula. Okay. The traditional location of Mount Sinai where um, uh, St. Catherine's Monastery is located and thousands of Christian pilgrims come every year to imagine Moses and the Ten Commandments happening there defies both scriptural description and geographical possibilities. Okay. Let's remember how this site near the southern end of the Sinai was declared to be the mountain of God. Constantine, emperor of Rome in the fourth century, had become a Christian and he declared Christianity as the government-authorized and therefore legal religion within the Roman Empire. His mother, Catherine, was also a convert, and so both mother and son were said to be prone to visions. Almost every biblical site in Israel today that has a monastery or a Catholic church built upon it was ordered by Catherine, Constantine's mother, all right, to commemorate that place as some event concerning Christ. Okay. And almost universally, those specific sites bore no, no known historical reality. These sites didn't even agree with the earliest church fathers 
nor any of the Jewish rabbis. Okay? Rather, these choices that are now so cemented into our Christian traditions were the result of her dreams and visions. Okay? Mount Sinai is one of those places. One would think that if the site of the true Mount Sinai was the one chosen by Catherine, that the Jews would have greatly revered it for centuries before she was even around. Jews knew nothing of this location as Mount Sinai. Okay. Now, interestingly, in Galatians 4.25, St. Paul states that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Okay. Josephus says that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Philo says Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Let's also remember that before Moses went to Egypt to free the people, when he was still a shepherd in Midian, he was attracted, it says, to a bush that was burning on a mountain in Midian. The Bible states unequivocally that the same mountain at which Moses first encountered God at the burning bush was the one that Israel was brought to when they left Egypt. Midian on the Arabian Peninsula. Now, some traditional Christian scholars have fought this, saying that the Sinai was in that era considered part of Arabia. That's just plain inaccurate. All right, in speculation without any hint of proof of it whatsoever. Okay, there's not one piece of evidence that has ever been found or documented to indicate such a thing. It's pure fantasy. Okay, but it is well documented that Egypt controlled the Sinai at the time of Moses and that Midian was on the Arabian Peninsula. A few scholars also try to explain Paul and Josephus away by stating that this mention of Arabia was just allegorical. Okay. Of course, allegory and metaphor at the heart of why it seems as though the church in many cases has wandered so far off course over the past couple of centuries. And how it could be that literally thousands of Christian denominations have been formed all basing ourselves on supposedly the same common document. But we hold such wide beliefs, wide disparity of beliefs. Well, we look back some time ago, back at the route of the Exodus and the area where Paul and Josephus say Mount Sinai is located and we found a place that not only matched the biblical description but even archaeological evidence was found of the Israelites staying there and that place was in Arabia. Now by the way, if this bothers some of you, this is nothing to get upset over. Okay, That Mount Sinai was actually in Arabia changes nothing about God's laws and his ways, about Jesus Christ, or about our faith. Okay, it's just interesting to know how certain traditions got started and we can wonder at why millions of people would choose to accept myths over the truth. Okay. Well, back to the stone tablets. God says he's going to write, or better, he says, I'm going to rewrite on these new tablets, the Ten Commandments, the same ones I gave to you before, in order to replace the ones that Moses had smashed upon seeing the people's rebellion against Jehovah when they had built that golden calf. Now recall that Moses' shattering of those tablets 
was typical Middle Eastern custom for indicating that an agreement, a covenant between two parties had been violated and therefore the tablet that the terms of those covenants had be recorded on was literally ceremonially broken. Okay, Yehovah descended in a cloud to where Moses had come. And this shows us once again, whether it be on the mountain or soon in the tabernacle, God's presence wasn't there at all times. He came and he went. Okay. Now at the end of the previous chapter, chapter 33, Moses had asked to see God's glory. And God was willing to grant Moses' request to a degree. The answer to the question of just where Moses would stand and hold, behold God's glory as it passed by is now answered. The summit of Mount Sinai is where it took place. The rock whose cleft Moses would hide in while God's visible essence passed was at the top, at the summit of the holy mountain. Let's take a look at that for a minute. What is happening in verses 6 and 7, chapter 34, is that Yehovah is proclaiming his character to Moses. Now today, we kind of take this for granted. I mean, if we've ever attended a church or synagogue, we've been taught about Yehovah's love and his mercy and so on. Okay. But these few verses here in Exodus are so important and central to the Hebrew religion that they become part of a few of a future Jewish liturgy. And they're known as, they're given a separate name and title. They're called the 13 attributes of God. Okay. Jehovah tells Moses that his very essence is mercy, love, patience, and faithfulness. That he is loyal to those whom he sets apart. Keeping loyalty, he says, to the thousandth generation in verse 6 is a Hebrew idiom. Doesn't mean that at the thousand and first generation it ends. Okay, it's a Hebrew idiom that simply means forever. Okay, yet Yehovah says that his justice demands that he cannot call the guilty innocent. In fact, the sins of the fathers, he says, will even affect their offspring to the third and the fourth generation. Even more, God will cause it to affect those generations. It isn't going to happen naturally. He's going to make it happen. Now, why three and four generations? Because in that day of extended families living together from birth to death, the typical family unit consisted of three and four generations living together. That was the typical household. In other words, it was typical that the great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and children all remained in one family unit. We would, we would call that an extended family. So when the sins of, let's say, the great-grandfather, for instance, were punished, naturally it affected the rest of the household. In our culture, in the age of what demographers call the nuclear family, that is, it's only the parents and the immediate children forming a household, a two-generation family unit, it works the same way. 
And sadly, most of us are old enough to know that when we sin and we're disciplined for it by the Lord, or God allows the natural consequences of our sin to be played out, it affects our whole family. Okay. It is this fully understood reality of three and four generations living together that allowed the phrase to the third and fourth generation to actually just eventually turn into a Hebrew expression that basically means a short time. Okay, So these verses contrast that the Lord is going to show his kindness forever to those who love and obey him, but will cause consequences for a person's sin for a relatively short time. That's the Lord's justice. Kind of nice, isn't it? Well, I have mentioned on a number of occasions a biblical principle that has always been important, but really it hadn't been front and center for the church or for our nation for that matter until probably the last five or six years. And the principle is this. There are only two ways we can know who our invisible God is. His name and his characteristics. That's it. We've just been given several characteristics, attributes of God, and his name has been carefully and firmly associated with those attributes. In fact, it was God himself who pronounced his own name, we're told. yud Hey vav Hey, those four Hebrew letters, Yehovah, and, and revealed his own characteristics, his own attributes to Moses. Obviously, this was not intended as an exhaustive list of all that God is. But really, how much more do we need? Okay. Today, there's this ongoing debate as to whether or not the Muslims claim that their God, Allah, is simply the same God as the God of the Christians and Jews, Yehovah. I gave a talk on that subject some time ago. Okay, And the bottom line is that after studying the Quran and doing some fairly extensive research, I'm convinced that Allah cannot possibly be Yehovah. Okay, Why? First, they don't have the same name. Okay, Allah... Well, the Bible puts, the Bible puts great importance on names, especially the name of God and the name of our Savior. Okay. The, the church has tended to regard names of have, having a rather unimportant place in our doctrines, but it's starting to come back to haunt us. Okay. No, Allah is not an Arabic translation of Yehovah. It is not. Okay. Allah is a nearly 4,000 year old name for the Arabian moon god. Okay. That of itself disqualifies any relationship between Yehovah and Allah. Second, Allah and Yehovah don't have the same characteristics. Okay? Take every one of the 13 attributes that Yehovah pronounces of himself here in Exodus 34, and you're going to find the nearly, if not precisely, opposite of those characteristics ascribed to Allah in the Quran, the Muslim equivalent of the Bible. 
If they don't have either the same name or the same attributes, it's ludicrous to think that they're the same God. We need to make, we need to pay a lot more attention, particularly in our era, to biblical names, to festivals, appointed times, and Sabbaths. And when we do, we're going to understand far more thoroughly who God is and what He's about and avoid the consequences of mixing truth, His truth, with men's philosophies and false religions, particularly in our day, when all the call of all the world around us is tolerance, peace at any price. Now let's go back to those two verses again, verses 6 and 7. When we look at some key words in the original Hebrew, we can acquire some deeper understanding. So I want to substitute some Hebrew words that most of you are now familiar with for their English translations in verse 2. This is literally how that verse reads. Yehovah passed before him, passed before Moses, and proclaimed, Yehovah, Yehovah El is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, and so forth. What I'm trying to demonstrate to you is that for several traditional reasons, the English translations do not actually say the name of God. Rather, when God's name, yud heh vav right, Yehovah, is actually written in the original, the translators tend to write the word God or Lord in its place. God and Lord are not names. In our society, we also deal with titles and names as separate things. Mr. or Mrs. is not a name, is it? Okay. Neither is doctor or congressman. Becky is a name. Bob is a name. King and president are not names. They're impersonal titles. Okay. Therefore, when God pronounces his name, it's a very personal thing. Okay, so it should not be surprising that in verse 5, when it says that God pronounced his name, that we get this phrase that I just gave you, whereby, of course, he uses his formal name. yud Okay, Yehovah, Yehovah, El, it says, is compassionate. Now, notice this use of the Hebrew word El that I just told you about. El is a title for the highest God in any pantheon of gods. El is not a word used in the Bible only for Yehovah. Okay. El was a title that various pagan religions would bestow on whichever of their many gods they thought stood above all the others. So the concept is a god above the other gods. Therefore, in the Bible, we will regularly see these expressions. God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. These are all expressions of the concept of the term El. Okay. Let me also remind you that while most Bible versions or translations will occasionally use Jehovah as God's name, a reasonably acceptable attempt to pronounce his name, as far as I'm concerned, 
Okay, these same versions will employ that name anywhere from four to five, perhaps as many as 15 to 20 times over the course of the entire Old Testament. But in the original, in the original Hebrew, God's name, Yudhe is written more than 6,000 times. Now, did God just do all this? Uh, giving Moses his name and his characteristics out of the blue. No, this was in response to Moses' request from the previous chapter. Right? Where he said in verse 13, now please show me your name and then please show me your glory. Well, moving on. God pronounces, God pronouncing his name and his attributes to Moses and passing before him, Moses uses that moment to appeal to God to restore this broken relationship with Israel as a result of the golden calf. And he falls on his face, we're told, before Jehovah. He agrees with God's assessment of the situation. He pleads for, rest pleads for restoration. Folks, I tell you, right there is the model for us to approach God. Right When we know we've committed an offense against him. That's what you do. Okay. First, though, you have to realize the sin was committed. Second, we confess that sin to God and agree with him that it indeed is sin. And then third, we ask for restoration, for forgiveness. Now, the fact that our sins have already all been forgiven and paid for due to the finished work of Christ doesn't change what we're supposed to do. We're still to go before God every day, confess our sins to him, because we still do sin, don't we? Okay, And we ask for forgiveness. But unlike Moses who had to wait for an answer, hey God, do you forgive me or don't you? Right? We're assured that we are forgiven. Right? When we confess with contrite hearts. Now understand how radical that concept is. Okay? People in Moses' day, right on up to Christ's day and beyond, were often worried and anxious over whether or not God was going to forgive a sin they had committed. They didn't know. They weren't sure. Okay? When someone sinned, it required a sacrificial ritual to atone. If the sacrifice wasn't done properly, or it wasn't accomplished within a certain amount of time, or if the priest that assisted them maybe turned out wasn't ritually clean, or one of a long list of other possible procedural errors occurred, then that sacrifice might not be accepted by Jehovah, and therefore forgiveness not granted. The people were not at all sure, many times, whether they'd been forgiven or not, and so they carried a dreadful burden. Okay. Believers don't have that problem, thanks to Yeshua. Now, we must note with the greatest sobriety that while God forgives Israel in Exodus 34 and he restores that relationship, he does not yet agree to dwell among them. Nor does he start again calling Israel my people, just yet. Okay. Some of the privileges so freely given to Israel and the intimacy between God and the Hebrews is going to be missing for a while. Okay. This is God's discipline at work. And it is a necessary consequence for their sin 
even though they are or will be soon forgiven. Now this modern evangelical doctrine among some denominations that Christians can sin without consequence, okay, without discipline or punishment, is just wrong-minded. And it has no scriptural backing. Okay, Old Testament or new. Forgiveness is forgiveness. We have that. But consequence is consequence too. Okay, one doesn't terminate the other. Okay, in verse 10, God reinstates the covenant with Israel that they had broken by means of the apostasy of the golden calf. But Jehovah makes it clear that there are two conditions for Israel to obey if God's promises to Israel within that covenant are going to come out. First, Israel must not mix themselves with the Canaanites and involve themselves in their idolatry. And second of all, there are several God-ordained observances and appointed times, as outlined in verses 17 through 26, that must always be kept. And in the same format as the covenant was first given, God says, if you do this, then I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Hivites, Perizzites, Hivites, or rather Jebusites, all of the ites. All right, I'm going to drive them all out in front of you. Okay. However, says Jehovah, don't you dare make a covenant, a peace treaty with any of these people. Don't you give any tribe settled in the land of Canaan any quarter. That land is set aside for you. Okay. Israel is to make a covenant only with God. Rather, Israel is to destroy Canaan's sacrificial altars, smash their standing stones. Standing stones were memorials to a god. Okay. And then they were to cut down their tree poles, okay. something akin to totem poles, okay. which were idols. Okay. Interestingly, the word used here in the scriptures that is often translated as tree pole or sacred pole and in some versions groves, which is actually the most literal translation, groves, is in Hebrew the word asherah. Or more literally, asherim, which is the plural. Okay. Asherah is where the name Ashtoreth comes from. The goddess Ashtoreth is also called Astarte. And in other cultures, she's known as Ishtar. Okay. Asherah, Ashtoreth, Astarte, Ishtar are all referring to the same thing. The fertility goddess. Okay. Whenever Israel fell into idolatry, it was either the moon god or the fertility goddess that they began to involve in their worship. Because this god, the moon god, and goddess, his consort, all right, the fertility goddess, were so universally honored. Okay. The Hebrews generally didn't stop worshiping Jehovah. That's not what they did. They didn't trade one for the other. They just added another god or two to the mix. Okay. Isn't it interesting that as much as we in the church can't seem to resist shaming ancient Israel for their idol worship, that we Christians have adopted the identical name used in the Bible 
for this pagan fertility goddess that God calls an abomination to use as the name for perhaps our most sacred holy day, Easter. That's right, Easter is just Anglo-Saxon for Ishtar. All right, Easter was the Anglo-Saxon Saxon fertility goddess. Okay, that's why our modern Easter celebrations employ rabbits and Easter eggs. Did you ever wonder what in the world that had to do with Jesus? All right, because a rabbit was the symbol for fertility of the fertility goddess, and the ovum eggs were the symbols of fertility. That's been that way for time, since time immemorial. I mean, we ought to think long and hard about this. All right, and how many other of our traditions? that have come about that we hold so dear and above reproach have maybe been a little bit infiltrated with things that we ought to get rid of. Okay. Now in verse 14, with the golden calf incident so very fresh in the people's minds, God repeats his command that the Hebrews are not to bow down to any other god. And in verse 15, Jehovah says to Israel that if you do make a covenant, in other words, if you do make an agreement, a treaty, with any of these various tribes living in the land of Canaan, it'll start you down a very slippery slope. Of course, in the books immediately following the Torah, we'll see in Joshua, for instance, that Joshua and those that he's leading do exactly what God is prohibiting here. They make peace treaties. They make covenants with several of the Canaanite tribes. You see... What Israel did was to disregard God's instructions in favor of what their natural minds thought was a much better course of action. Okay. In some instances, they made treaties that allowed Canaanite kings to continue in power if they would pay tribute, if they'd pay taxes to Israel in return. I mean, who doesn't want a little free money, a little extra income? Okay. Besides, that really is how the whole world operated since time immemorial. A conqueror often chose to keep a king, another king, in power if it was profitable. In other cases, Israel thought they were showing love and mercy by not removing people from the land that God said were to be removed. Okay. Certainly God would understand and honor their decision and their sincere desire to be nice and loving, right? I mean, the results of that mindset have proved disastrous. And the consequences continue to this day for this disobedience to God's explicit commands dating back to the days of Moses and Joshua. Because that's all what is largely responsible for the mess that's the Middle East today. Okay, now I don't want to get too preachy but if ever there was a call to God's church to be uncompromising, this section of Exodus is that call. Okay, Jehovah is not a God of religious tolerance. Jehovah is not a God of compromise and consensus. Okay? Jehovah does not honor our sincerity or our earthly definition of love above his commands. Okay. We're told in verse 14, and this isn't the first time we've encountered this statement, that he is a jealous God. 
and he will not tolerate the worship of a false god. He just told his people not to mix themselves with pagans because it was inevitable that if they want, still wanted a good relationship with those people, it would probably involve compromise. Okay? And the Lord uses very strong language that's frankly usually diluted, diluted by, by rather genteel people who've translated the Bible for us and don't wish to use harsh words that would offend the readers. For instance, God calls right here in, in Exodus 34, the act of accepting pagan gods into your midst, whoring. We all know what that means. I don't have to explain it to you. Pretty strong words. Now, the modern world now says that in the perilous times facing humanity, every person on planet Earth falls into one of two categories. Tolerant or hate-filled. Okay? If you're not one, you're the other. Listen to me carefully. That is a satanic principle. That is not a God principle. Okay? God's people are not to be at all tolerant of false gods, such as Allah. Or is it to declare what God calls evil to be good, such as homosexuality or abortion? Or are we to bow down to the wishes and customs of pagans, such as joining them in their holy days, like Halloween, all for the sake of getting along? On the other hand, our response isn't to be hatred. It's not to be killing. Okay, we're not to go out of our way to create strife and upheaval. We're to be a light, not a sword. Okay, We're supposed to be gentle and not mean-spirited. Okay. But the only light we have is the light of our Savior. And if we tolerate and accept and respect or join in the ways of his adversary, how can we really expect God to be glorified in all that? I mean, when Israel did this very thing, compromise, accept the ways of the pagans out there in the wilderness, what did God do? He removed his presence from them. He stopped dwelling among them. He says, hey, as of right now, I stopped leading you. Okay. I mean, do we honestly believe that God's character has changed and now he will tolerate among his very own tabernacles? Because folks, that's what you are. You are God's wilderness tabernacles today in the most literal possible way. Do you really think he's going to tolerate us chasing after the world because we so sincerely want peace? We're willing to do anything? I mean, we're going to have to learn to stand firm and realize that peace with God is not the same thing as peace with the world. Okay. In fact, in our age, they've become opposites. And like Israel had to do in their settling of the promised land, they had to choose one or the other. They couldn't compromise between the two, but Lord knows they tried. All right, next week, we'll conclude chapter 34.